So I want to invite you to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to be reading only a few verses from chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. And if you don't have a smartphone, if you can't find uh, access to one, then I would love to read this out to you. I want you to hear this good news that this man named Paul speaks to a church in Rome. So beginning in verse 18 of Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. In hope that the, that, the, excuse me, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. We have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. I want to pose a question that maybe this particular section of the Bible will help us to answer. If you're new to this thing called Christianity or following Jesus, or even if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or a follower of Jesus, I'm glad you're here. This is a great night for your, for your friends to have drug you in here. I'm really glad they did that. But you probably noticed over the last few minutes we're singing these songs that, that have cryptic words about blood and, and about crosses and, and modes of pain and torture and suffering. And we're singing them in a way that seems kind of gleeful and joyful. And as Christians, we celebrate historically this day before Easter, this Friday before Easter, and we call it Good Friday. And I want to pose one question. How on earth could the worst day in all of history be called good? The day where the perfect, spotless, and innocent Jesus was betrayed by His own and led up a mountain to be crucified publicly, shamefully, on an old rugged cross. And I want to pose to you this question. How on earth could we say, how, how could Christians anywhere could look at the worst possible thing and say that it's good? And I think that this particular passage of Scripture gives us the answer. 
pose this question. How could we say that something awful, how could we say something like the crucifixion and betrayal of Jesus is good? In fact, how could we even sing songs about crucified Jesus, the blood that was poured out of him in such a way that we're actually hopeful and joyful? And the book of Romans is a theological journey through the entirety of what we call the gospel, that is the good news of Jesus. Beginning with the sinfulness of humanity in the first few chapters, the righteousness that's given to you and I by faith, that is, that the greatness and omnipotence and power of God is met with the weakness of our frail human being bodies, and and faith is the thing that joins us together. It's a gift that Jesus gives us. And the power of our sinfulness and even our lawlessness has been put to death. It's even been buried with Christ in His tomb, and for us it's been drowned in our baptism. And now this new life that is at work in us by the power of God's Spirit present and active in and among us. That's where we are in this chapter. And there's this new life that's begun that makes us now family with God. Did you catch that? We're eagerly awaiting this adoption that we have with God to where now our our mistakes, our sinfulness, our rebelliousness doesn't separate us from God, but then God looks at us and chooses to adopt us. This is meant to illustrate this powerful new life that we have by His Spirit. A spiritual life, not just a physical life. But He compares this spiritual life, I think you caught it here, to this brokenness of the present age, the world we now live in. All of creation. This passage tells us that it's in pain. It's groaning. It's been subjected to vanity, to uselessness. It's fallen. And yet it is not in spite of this fallen and broken world that God's Spirit gives us a divine hope. But instead, it's actually in the midst of this fallen and broken world that the Spirit of God gives us hope. To the extent that the brokenness of this world and all of the suffering that comes with it is not even worth comparing to the glory that God will share with us in Jesus Christ. So just measure that for just a minute. I I do not even have to go to great efforts to illustrate you the brokenness of this world. If you have watched a television in the last week, you get the sense something's wrong. Someone is trying to do something to harm someone else on a regular basis. And sometimes they are successful to such a degree that we're left wondering, like, what is going on? How, How can this be? And some of us would say, well, the, the, the solution must be then. we got, we got to get away from all this evil. We have, to, we, have to, we have to get back to where it was good. We have to go back in time to when it wasn't evil. Or we have to get away from evil people and separate ourselves from people who want to do us harm. Because there's brokenness everywhere. And notice what we have here in chapter 8. It doesn't say that we're supposed to find hope by escaping the evil of this earth. It doesn't say that we're going to find hope by uh, separating ourselves from evil people. But instead, it says that there is hope that is so great that it's not even worth weighing side by side the brokenness in which we now live. The creation that's in pain it's bleeding and hurting, isn't even worth comparing to what God means to do for you and for me through Jesus Christ. Just, just begin to let that sit for just a minute. This isn't an abstract thought that exists sometime in past or, 
or an abstract idea that applies to somewhere to someone somewhere else. Listen, I consider in verse 18, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Just let that weigh on you for a minute. What would you say if you were to look into the mirror, if you would look into the news, if you would look into all of our culture, what would you say in your own words is the present suffering, the suffering that exists in our present day? And and what words would you use to describe it? What emotions are attached to it for you? What scars does it leave? What fear do you presently walk around with because of what you've endured? Either because of something you've done or something that's been done to you. And something radical is posed here. that There is a joy. There is a glory. There is a gift that God is revealing in the world. And He is bringing this kingdom about for us in Jesus Christ. And it is not even worth comparing to the awfulness that we observed in last week in Brussels. So how on earth could we call this day good? I don't want to just talk about Jesus and His suffering, but I want to talk about our suffering, what we presently recognize in this broken world. And I want you to begin to crack open the most difficult recesses of your own imagination and imagine just for a minute, what could possibly in the world happen to make the events of this last week not seem that bad. In fact, if we take these words at face value, what on earth could there be for us? What would it have to look like for us to say that this goodness is so great that it's not even worth comparing to the pain and suffering that we have witnessed this last week in Brussels? You see, the parallel that this book wants to give us is the life of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that Jesus had a same approach to the day that we now recognize as Good Friday. It says that for the joy set before Him, Jesus endured the cross. So make no mistake, this is a dark and awful day, but it isn't a mistake. It isn't that Jesus was walking along and was blindsided by his friends who sold him out or the people who turned on him. Instead, there was a joy set before him that was hanging on the cross, this form of torture that he was willing to reach out toward and and live into that made him look past the pain of the cross to the point where Hebrews 12 tells us that even it despised the shame that came from it. He looked at the cross knowing that he would be hung naked in front of all of these people and yet looked at it and saw a joy that was in it. Does that begin to stretch the recesses of your imagination? Does that begin to stretch the limits of your ability to reason? Does that begin to to pull apart what you typically think is good and bad? We call this day good. Think about what our culture thinks is good, right? Think about what's a good day, if you, if, you, if you had that dream day, what, what's the good day in your mind? What's, what's the good life that you picture? One day out there, I'm going to get the good life. Pursuing it, I'm going I'm to receive the good life. And we typically define it by prosperity, by joy, right? Because the good life isn't just getting from point A to point B, is it? The good life is getting from point A to point B in leather seats, Right? That's the good life. It's not just that you get what you need. It's that you get even more than you need. The good life is excess. It's extravagance. It's a prodigal wealth, isn't it? That's the good life for us. I mean, 
just getting from point A to point B on our feet all of a sudden becomes to undermine our even understanding of a good life, doesn't it? Like, ugh. And yet we see here that the suffering that we endure and that the world endures somehow pales in comparison to a goodness that God means to give to us. Even to the extent that Jesus, that we celebrate on this day, will accomplish something for you and for me that's so great that being hung naked on an old rugged cross could be called later by you and I good. You see, this passage begins to unfold the what it means to compare the present sufferings and the age to come. So don't miss this. We don't simply diminish suffering, right? We never would say that. And don't do that, please. Don't. If someone, if someone you love experiences some great loss or some great tragedy, please do not just run up to them and go, well, you know what? The present sufferings are not worth comparing to the joy that Jesus is going to give you. Please don't do that. Because we don't diminish the pain that exists. In fact, we're quite honest about it, aren't we? Paul here tells us that not only is creation broken, but it's like it's yearning for something. It's been subjected to a waste of time, futility, vanity. And it's just like the pains of childbirth, which according to anyone who would, anyone with any sort of uh, experience would have to say, this is the worst possible pain. The greatest possible pain that a human can endure. That's how bad it is. The earth right now is like in childbirth. It's, it's going through the worst possible pain that human beings can endure. So we don't diminish the pain. In fact, the pain that the world is enduring, whether you're in Brussels or whatever this burden that we carry is for us, our, our job isn't to make light of it or to diminish it. In the same way that on Friday, we don't call this Good Friday because the cross wasn't that bad. In fact, we of all people recognize the pain and hurt that exists in the world. And we see it for what it is. And we identify with it. So friend, we do not diminish pain. We do not diminish suffering. In fact, you and I are the ones who are called to identify with it. To groan with those who groan alongside us. To hurt alongside people. To be people of deep empathy. And the reason is, not because we separate ourselves from pain, but because the joy and hope that we're meant to find, according to Romans chapter 8, is found in the midst of the pain. The kingdom that is coming is already begun to be visible for us. And the Spirit, according to verse 26, helps us in our weakness. So even now, as I begin to tell you, yeah, like God is going to do something through this whole mess. You're going like, how's that possible? And the Spirit is the one who opens our eyes and our weakness and lack of understanding. The Spirit begins to show us, and something miraculous and spiritual happens. And when I say spiritual, I mean not natural. I mean supernatural. I mean the belief that something good could come out of something evil is a supernatural belief. It is not a natural belief. I do not naturally look at suffering and go, oh, this is going to be fun. That's a supernatural perspective, is it not? And that's a spiritual revelation that we experience. And the reason is that God is doing something. God is doing something so great, and because He is so great, we see Him for who He is, and He's doing something that actually takes all the things in the world, according to verse 28, and He's working them together for good 
for those of us who see and open our eyes to the possibility that He is worthy of admiration and love. All things together for good. So imagine that. Looking at the worst possible thing in the world and thinking, because God is good and because God is doing something, it's not that that thing has lost its terribleness. In fact, it is quite terrible. But it's that something has happened that is so overwhelmingly great, so much and so much infinitely greater than this awful thing that we begin to open our mind to the possibility that God is going to work it together for good. Imagine that, looking at the worst possible thing and thinking, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that thing has now lost its terribleness. We sang it just a few minutes ago, right out of the New Testament, that death has lost its sting. And even the places you would say, like, this was like hell on earth, we say, hell, where is your victory? It's not that those things aren't evil or not bad. It's just that there is a fruit and the evidence of a broken world coming out. And we would never say that that evil is somehow good. We would just say this is the evidence of a broken and fallen world. But I want to invite you to the possibility that even in the midst of all of this brokenness, that God might have a goal, God might have a person, God might be doing something that is so great and so miraculous that one day we will look back on the suffering of this present age and not even find it comparable to this goodness. So, imagine for just a minute a few scenarios in which this might be illustrated. Imagine for a minute I, I was a manufacturer, right? I don't, know what, uh, I don't know what would be good or bad or would offend or would not offend you, but let's imagine I, uh, I manufactured and sold phones, right? That's, that's my job. That's my purpose. That's my goal. And for whatever reason, you hate the fact that I sell phones and you want me to fail, right? Either because of envy, because you want to sell phones, maybe because you hate phones, uh, or maybe it's personal and you hate me. But for whatever reason, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to manufacture and sell phones. I'm just using that because most of you are probably carrying one. So you can, most of you can relate to this. So I'm manufacturing, selling phones. I'm making this good phone. And you, in an effort to destroy what I'm doing, begin to try to undermine my project, right? So the first thing you do is you start maybe destroy my means of building phones. Maybe you like attack people who are with me. Maybe you harm my ability to make phones. And, and you're efforts to destroy my ability to make phones somehow actually makes me better at making phones. Like imagine for a minute that you were frustrated by this and so the next thing you thought, you know what, this guy's really successful at this endeavor. I'm going to defame him. I'm going to run him down. In fact, I'm going to attack the people with him. And even though you harmed the people with me, the people on my side to fulfill this task of making phones, and every effort you put forth to destroy this ability actually miraculously made me better at making phones. And not only did you fail at stopping me from succeeding at the thing that I wanted to accomplish, but every single effort that you put forth to stop me actually made me better at what I was meaning, I was meaning to do all along. You begin to see it? begin to have your eyes open to the possibility what this would look like to believe that all things work together for good, that even bad things done cannot thwart the will of God, but in fact, catch this, can even be used by Him for 
his, for your good and for his will to be accomplished. You get it? Because the analogy is not done. Now imagine you were so frustrated with my undying success at manufacturing phones that out of your anger and frustration, you came after me. And you killed me. And you took my life. And you publicly displayed to everyone that I am now dead and this purpose of manufacturing phones is now done. Now. Now you're ripe and ready to begin to contemplate the powerful truth of this passage and the goodness of Friday. That even if you killed me, what if, what would it be like if killing me actually didn't stop me from manufacturing and selling phones, but then it even made me greater at it? You get it? radical. It's counterintuitive. It's against our culture, right? Because we have no problem imagining a home builder who uses things like wood and bricks and nails and tools to build a home, right? That makes sense. You use the most compatible components and you, and you make something out of it. But there's something crazy about a home builder who uses things like tornadoes and floods and hurricanes, to build homes. You see how counterintuitive it is? This, is? this is the thing that is meant to undermine our own values and our own picture of the world. That even in spite of this brokenness, God might actually be doing something that will take that which is broken and then use it for His glory. And it says here, for our good. God is going to work these things together for good. There's a purpose that cannot be thwarted. You see, we're used to thinking that there's two sets of things. There are good things, and then there's bad things. And they, and they lead to two different places. And that these good things lead to good places, and bad things lead to bad places. And yet what we see here is that God has the power to make them one and the same. That God's goodness and the good that He means to accomplish for us in Jesus Christ is so great that even bad things have no power to thwart His good purposes. We tend to think that there's like a sacred thing and then there's a secular thing. There's a holy thing and then there's an unholy thing. There are good people who do good stuff. And then there are bad people who do bad stuff. And we're kind of faced with a conflict here, aren't we? Because we're tempted to think that the story of Jesus that we celebrate today, Jesus, He came to a group of people who were excited that He was there, but when they found out that, they weren't gonna get, that Jesus wasn't going to give them everything they wanted from Him, they began to turn on Him. They began to feel threatened by His power. And so much that His own people began to turn against Him. One of His own, that is, Judas began to betray him and his own friends, the people he had poured his life into over the course of a few years, weren't there when, they, when Jesus needed him the most. And they turned him over to the bad people. The Roman soldiers, the occupiers, who stripped him naked, beat him, flogged him, embarrassed him, and then nailed him to a cross to slowly and painfully, embarrassingly and humiliatingly die for all to see. And those are things that we think are bad. Those are kinds of experience that you and I would say are bad. Being betrayed, that's bad. Being 
abandoned. That's bad. Being stripped naked and hung out to dry. That's bad. Being turned over to the evil people. That's bad. And yet we see this strange conflation of both good and bad that God is doing something so good that even the betrayal, abandonment, and crucifixion of Jesus cannot thwart the goodness that God means to do. In fact, God can use that awful and terrible old rugged cross and actually accomplish it, accomplish his will and use that as a symbol for his victory. So why is that important? Why would you even think about that? Here's what I want to just pose to you and I'll end on this. Because if you begin to open your mind and imagination to the possibility that the risen Savior that we celebrate this Sunday and the resurrection of Him being alive is enough to outweigh the awfulness of this Friday, then what if the resurrected Savior and the goodness that comes from it is great enough to outweigh the awfulness that you and I now experience? What if all the stuff in the category of bad in your life and mine are actually things that God is going to use for good? You see, we kind of recognize this sometimes. I think that's why we get really excited about things like a fireman running into the building in 9-11. That's not a smart or wise thing to do, but there's like a sacrifice, there's a cost, and we honor it. Memorial Day rolls around once a year, and, and it's strangely, even though people have experienced great loss, there's something in us that, even in even a small sense, we start to go, okay, there's, there's something here, there's something greater that's being accomplished something greater that's happening i would argue even the simple things like when we pray if you do this before you eat a meal you're recognizing something died something bad had to happen to this stuff for me to feel really good about it i mean i don't know about you but like a salad is just like a bowl of slaughter and death is it not it's like a combination of all sorts of dead things Like, how many dead plants can you pile into a bowl? But we don't say, oh, that's awful. All these dead things, these dead animals, these dead plants. We don't don't say that before a meal, do we? Instead, we go, oh, oh, thank you, God, for all this dead stuff. This is going to be delicious. I'm so glad that this wheat plant is no longer wheat, but it is now carbs and gluten. Nah, we love it. And you begin, you get it? You get the glimpse? Is it possible that that's not only what's happening at dinner? That's not only what's happening when we celebrate our memory of like 9-11? It's not only what's happening on a memorial day, and that's not only what's happening on a good Friday, but that, that's exactly what God is doing through all things. All things. And molding them together for something that is good. You see, what makes this good Friday really good is that we don't deserve it. What makes this Good Friday so good is that you and I probably deserve the cross more than Jesus. You and I deserve to be humiliated for our mistakes and our rebelliousness and our sinfulness. And what really makes this good is that we don't deserve it. Picture for a minute your own guilt, your own sin, your own mistakes, the hurt that you've caused to others your own darkness that exists in the deep crevices of your heart that you're afraid to admit to anyone else. And picture that that guilt, 
that you now weigh for this is present for all to see. Imagine in a courtroom where you were sitting there and you look up to a perfect and holy God and you see in His perfection all of His goodness and you look at yourself and see only darkness. And now imagine that that judge looks at you and sees all of your wretchedness and your rebelliousness and says that you are guilty and you deserve to be hung on a cross. And instead of sentencing you to death, He sentences Himself to death. And the judge gets up from behind the bench. He takes off his robe and he steps into your shoes and he takes the judgment and the sentence that you rightfully deserve. Wouldn't you think in some miraculous way that that judge is not only just, but he is good? Consider the possibility that not only is this Friday good because God is doing something good, but He is doing something good for you and me who do not deserve it. And Jesus, who is the rightful judge, decided that in our place He would step and He would walk out from behind the bench to bear the eternal weight of this divine wretchedness such that the brokenness that we see explained in Romans chapter 8, the wretchedness, the groaning pains of birth and the groaning wretchedness of futility was worn by Jesus Christ for you and for me. So what do we do? I believe when we begin to open our eyes to this, we begin to see that God is not only doing something on this day, on this weekend, once a year, but he's doing something on a regular basis for our good. And the way that we like to celebrate that, the way that we declare that, is what we call the Lord's Supper. We call it communion or the Eucharist, however you want to call it. We we say that this sacrifice that Jesus has made for us, his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us, is now good and on our behalf we take it as sustenance and it is a sacrifice we celebrate. You see, I don't want you to just think about the wretchedness of Jesus' death on Good Friday so that you'll be filled with sentimentality. I don't want you to just feel bad for Jesus. Jesus does not want your pity. Jesus wants your penitence. Jesus does not want you to feel bad about the cross. Jesus wants you to feel bad about your sin so that you see the cross and realize that it is a beautiful and a great and gracious gift by a loving God to you and I who don't deserve it. And the way we celebrate this tangibly is we declare his death until he returns. So in a moment here, I'm going to close us and our worship team is going to come back up and we're going to declare this good news. And and maybe if this creepy singing of death and blood the first time we did this around seems strange to you, maybe now your eyes are open to the possibility of singing how this wretched day could be good for us. But it's also possible that we might celebrate the body and the blood of Jesus as a sacrifice for our sin. So I want to read to you just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Apostle Paul says to you and to me, he says, I'm receiving from the Lord something that I want to deliver to you. He says it this way. He says, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had gave thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. So do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup and after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Did you catch that? When we take the bread and we dip it into the juice and by this juice-soaked piece of bread, we drink the blood of Jesus, we are declaring that God is working all things for good. We are saying that the death of Jesus is actually a good thing. It's actually an amazing thing. It's the thing by which we have joy. It's the thing by which we no longer have to look at our own sin, but we get to look at his forgiveness. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for how good you are, and we thank you so much for how merciful you are. We thank you for all the ways that we do not deserve this and yet are still recipients of it. We thank you for your mercy in spite of all that we have done. If there's some in this room and this, this thought of the suffering of Jesus is, is nonsense and the thought that it could be good, it just seems like nonsense. Would you even now begin to open their eyes to the possibility that not only can you use something like the death of your perfect son for something good, but you can use the wretchedness that is in our own heart to open our eyes to your good and perfect will. Would you begin to stretch the, God, the the worn out parts of our imagination? We We tend to just think bad things are bad. There's no way that you could use them for good. Would you right now, as people have their burdens, the things that they've brought into this room with them, would you begin to take them from them? Would you let them free of them? That they would begin to see that those burdens have meant to be used to draw them near to you and experience your grace. For those of us who know this good news, we've heard this good news. In fact, we've probably heard it so much that it it, it almost has no effect on us. Would you renew in us a sense of, of wrong that was done to you, Jesus? Would you renew in us a sense of wretchedness and brokenness that this world currently lives in? Would you renew in us an awareness of our own sin and brokenness such that we begin to see the sacrifice that you've made for us as an ever-beautiful and sustaining gift on our behalf? Do this for us, Jesus. Only you can do this. We ask it in your name. Amen.